just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome back to The Spectator podcast. I'm Laura Prendergast. With the British civil service becoming the latest of Trump's Twitter victims, I take a look at what a Boris Johnson premiership would mean for relations with America. Plus, we also ask if we're to pursue reparations for past injustices, should Anglo-Saxons sue the Normans for 1066 and all that? And last, why are male Tory MPs quite so keen on jogging? Boris Johnson has been under fire this week for not coming to the defence of the former British ambassador to America, Sir Kim Darroch. So, is this a sign of things to come? In this week's cover, Freddie Gray takes a look at what transatlantic relations might look like under Prime Minister Johnson, arguing that Boris might better understand Trump than Theresa May ever did. Freddie joins me now, together with Anand Menon, Professor of European Politics at King's College London and Director of the UK in a Changing Europe initiative. Freddie, you say in your piece that this diplomatic crisis is also an opportunity for both Boris and Trump. What exactly do you mean by that? Well, I think it's obviously an opportunity in that Anglo-American relations, while sort of cordial, have not been as good as they could have been in the last few years. And this is largely down to the fact that um, Theresa May and a lot of her team and a lot of civil servants can't really handle Trump. They can't really compute Donald Trump. And it's understandable, perhaps. It was a shock to everyone that he won the election. But Boris has shown signs that he does see the potential upsides of a Trump presidency. And he doesn't let his sort of whatever instinctive horror he might have at Donald Trump, override uh, the opportunities that Donald Trump gives us as President of the United States. So that's why I think with Boris coming in, and obviously with this resignation of St. Kim Darrick, it's time. It's a good time for sort of new brooms and a reset in Anglo-American relations. And, and we're obviously assuming here that Boris Johnson is going to become Prime Minister. And if he yeah. does, I mean, do, you, do you also see him cozying up to Trump? Well, I think there's two things about our relationship with the United States. Firstly, yes, we need to adapt the way we deal with the United States to a president who is unique and has a different sort of style. There's a broader point as well that I think if I'm allowed to sort of quote rival publications, Ben Judah had a piece in The Atlantic yesterday about the fact that actually we're not very good at dealing with the United States anymore because it's not just about diplomats dealing with diplomats. It's about having influence on the Hill. It's about looking at the way the Canadians have nurtured relationship with state governors. It's about deepening those connections across the United States. So I think, we, it, you know, it's not just Trump, but we need to look more broadly at the way we do relations with the United States. Freddie, Trump can at times be a fairly volatile character. Do you think that's going to make life hard for Boris or is he going to find that sort of easy to deal with? I think Trump is obviously a volatile character, but I do think there's a sort of basic way of operating with him, which is, you know, you play nice with him. You don't you don't sort of appease the media's desire to hate him and uh, he'll place nice with you. It's very sort of he's a good guy. That's what he always says about any other male leader. So I, I think uh, he's already shown that he likes Boris. There's an easy way for those two to get on. And, and in Freddie's piece, he says that Boris isn't by nature a pushover. I mean, do you think do you think that's true? Well, I'd, I'd assume that Freddie knows him better than I do. I mean, I, I thought it was a really good piece, I have to say. The one thing I would say, and the one thing that was slightly missing is this. On the one hand, it is a no-brainer that we should have good relations with the United States, not just because they're the most powerful country on earth, but also because we have a deep and long-lasting security and economic relationship with them. 
On the other hand, the thing that was slightly missing, I think, is there are going to have to be trade-offs here because, well, because of geography, to put it quite simply. So, for instance, one of the first things that a prime minister is going to confront is the need to deal with Iran. And there we have a choice, don't we? Because the Europeans and the United States have adopted very, very different positions on Iran. The fact of the matter is that in many ways, our interests are more closely aligned with those of the French and the Germans because we're closer to Iran. We are particularly sort of vulnerable to the threat of terrorism and other such uh, retaliatory devices. And we have an interest in maintaining the nuclear deal. So yes, we need to have a good relationship with the United States. But ultimately, the Prime Minister is going to have to make a series of difficult decisions about trade-offs. And that's true in economics as well, because yes, it would be great to have a trading relationship with the United States. I'm somewhat cynical about the idea that we do so in breach of EU law, because ultimately we also have to have a trade relationship with the Europeans, because we trade more with them than we do with the United States. Let's talk about Brexit, because this is clearly what a lot of this boils down to. Fred, one part of your piece that was quite interesting was when you speak to Steve Bannon, and he tells you about Trump's trade deal. Can you explain to listeners what exactly he told you? Well, I think it's not just Bannon. There's quite a few of the Trump circle who felt that Brexit and Trump were sort of um, the stars aligning in favour of freedom, if you like, and that this was a great opportunity to, to sort of bring Brexit Britain and America closer together. And Trump, not really thinking through any of the kind of legal complexities, offered a, a free trade deal within a sort of a, a, a hundred days or something, he said, you know. A lot of the people in the, in the, on the American side of the room saw what was going on here and they saw that May couldn't process, she couldn't understand how to deal with this kind of offer and she sort of shut the conversation down. And Trump even apparently had to say to her, you could just use this as leverage with the Europeans, you can use this to negotiate a better deal for Britain. And, and May just wasn't quite imaginative enough, imaginative enough to see the opportunities there. I don't think that would be the problem with with Boris. And just, just to go back to something Anand said, you're absolutely right about concessions and Iran and the divergence in opinion there. But Boris actually tried to stand up quite hard against the Americans uh, mm-hmm. tearing up the Iran deal. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's interesting things about Boris in America. For instance, he banned the use of the term special relationship when he was the foreign secretary because he felt it sounded needy. Um, and I have always thought that we do sound a bit craven when we desperately appeal for kind of, you know, the Americans to emphasise the specialness of our relationship, like a sort of very needy wife. I think that Boris is, what I mean by that, him being not being a pushover, is that he's not a greaser. I mean, he can certainly suck up to people cleverly and charm them, but he won't be a kind of pushover. I think that's that's fairly obvious. But Fred, with the um, Kim Derrick story, people have been saying that we have slightly cut out to America. I mean, some of the people who say that you know we were kowtowing to Europe and now saying we're kowtowing to America. I mean, do you, do you think that's a fair comment as well? I don't think so. I've heard people also say that Boris Johnson's thrown Kim Derrick under the bus. Uh, throwing him under the bus would have been saying, as soon as I get in, I'm going to get rid of him because he, he's untenable. But on the, but in, he just in didn't, the TV debates, he didn't really he say anything. To... And in fact, well, yesterday I heard he said that if Trump can get on with Kim Jong-un, I don't see why he can't get on with Kim Derrick. So, I, I mean, I don't think that we're kowtowing. I think that the, the problem was the leak. As soon as you have a leak of a diplomatic cable that says rude things about a president, you've got a serious problem. And Derek had to go. And he, the best thing would have been for him to fall on his sword. And that's what's happened. And do you think it was inevitable that Kim Derek had to go? Yeah, I think it was always the case, given how 
the White House reacted to the leak and the leak itself that he would have to stand down, I think. But, I mean, I think it's true that Mr Johnson didn't throw him under the bus, but I think in that debate the other night, what he did do was he saw him stepping in front of a bus and perhaps didn't shout out and warn him that the bus was coming. He didn't offer his support. Can I just say one thing about the economics and the economic relationship? I do think it would be great to have a trade deal with the United States, but it's worth being sort of sensible about this. Firstly, if we leave the European Union with no deal and do what the government has suggested, which is simply to slash tariffs across the board, there would be no need for the United States to sign a trade deal with us because World Trade Organization rules means we'd have no tariffs with them either. And so what would we have to negotiate with? Secondly, tariffs with the United States are already very, very low. So a simple free trade agreement with the United States would do us some good and would free up trade, but it wouldn't free up trade that much. The only way you free up trade a lot with the United States is to do a deal that involves services. And it's just worth being honest about the fact that services deals are incredibly hard to do because they're enormously, they're invasive on national sovereignty because they involve aligning rules and regulations. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, I think Brexiteers are naive. They think that you can do a sort of straight swap between Europe and America. But again, I think the sort of counter argument to that is, is too strong, too, that this doesn't mean we should discount the possibilities of a closer friendship with America after Brexit. And this a particularly a interesting area is ag- ag- <laughs> No, no, we wanted you to disagree more. <laughs> you wanted to disagree more? Okay. <laughs> well, then, Anne. Stop uh, talking crap. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't think anyone is saying that we can sort of swap our trading relationship with Europe with America and everything will be fine. And if they do, they're very stupid. But nonetheless, I think there are definite advantages of a closer trading relationship with America after Brexit. Uh, one particular area is agricultural. I mean, Trump is very, very keen on se- securing rural votes in the next election. Therefore, he needs to get lower tariffs for American exports on agriculture and, and, he, and, and with Xi Jinping, he's just agreed that. So if Britain can play a part in that too, that will be, be good leverage against Europe. It can be an, a useful tool in negotiations. And I, and I think, you know, to not recognise the opportunity was a great mistake of May's. And hopefully it's one that Boris doesn't make too. Just finally, Freddie, in your piece, you say that the, the big risk in all of this is that for all of Trump's warm words, he's not necessarily going to do Britain any great favours. I mean, what do you think are the big risks here? No, well, Trump, like uh, Boris, is, is, a, is, a, is a charlatan. You know? <laughs> I mean, uh, you can't really believe what he says. Nonetheless, th- there is a warmth there that, that you could take advantage of. And that also that Trump does need allies, particularly as he geostrategically sort of uh, becomes more and more competitive and, and uh, combustible with China. I mean, what, what I would say to that is no country ever negotiates a trade deal for the benefit of the other side. But the question is whether or not there are enough overlapping interests that mean that we can make some progress that serve both our interests and free up trade between us. And I, and I suspect, yes, there are. There are there are ways of doing it. And as Freddie says, a trade deal would be a good thing to have with the United States. Thank you, Freddie and Anand. Next, Cambridge University is conducting an inquiry into its historical links with slavery this year. Too right, says Sahil Mantani, a city analyst specialising in economic history. And while we're at it, Sahil writes, why don't Anglo-Saxon descendants also take the Normans to court for 1066? After all, they pillaged and raped, oppressed and dominated, and those of the Norman surnames are still 25% overrepresented in Oxbridge to this day. So, do reparations ever make sense? Sahil joins me now, together with Nadine Bachelor-Hunt, former president of the Cambridge University Student Union's Black and Minority Campaign. 
So, Sahil, can you set out your thesis for us that you write about in this week's issue? Sure. Um, so, tongue in cheek, it's calling for Norman reparations for the Anglo-Saxons to the Anglo-Saxons for 1066, um, and it's because modern Anglo-Saxons are still at a disadvantage. We have some uh, research from Gregory Clark at UC Davis where he says people with Anglo-Saxon surnames are, or rather people with Norman surnames are still 25% overrepresented at Oxbridge, despite the 31 generations that have passed in between. And we know there's an Oxbridge wage premium, which means that these people are still earning tens of thousands more over the course of their career. Um, and so my question, I suppose, was uh, was why not? Why not have Norman spare reparations? So we propose a uh, mandatory genetic testing, a royal commission to investigate bloodlines, and a small tax on people named Neville, Gerard, and Lampard. And how do you think this would go down with the Normans? Who... Well, I think the Normans would be very upset, but in the interests of justice, they must pay. Nadine, what do you think of Sir Hill's point that if we pursue reparations for past injustices, where do we ever stop? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think anybody that's serious about, you know, reparations and restorative justice and that kind of stuff has to think about the whole, you know, picture holistically. Like, what are we trying to aim? What What is the ambition here? What do we want the end game to be? Personally, if you want my opinion on this, I think each case needs to be taken in its own right. And I think if you start using extreme arguments for me like the like you're using the anglo-saxon argument it kind of takes away from the reality of the issue a prime example of reparations and restitution and you know looking at the colonial history of uh, the west is haiti so you may say oh this was hundreds of years ago but for countries like haiti these um these injustices are still greatly affecting it to give you an example haiti achieved independence in 1804 they were then told that they had to pay reparations for this freedom in the form of 21 billion dollars in modern equivalent they only finished paying that off in 1947 and currently a quarter of Haitians live in extreme poverty. A hundred thousand children around that are malnourished. Around one hundred and fifty thousand Haitians live with HIV and AIDS. So, in this situation, it's very, very clear that colonialism and slavery have a, a lasting, enduring, and tangible effect. Now, I appreciate technically the reality is, you know, you're saying that you know uh, Anglo-Saxon heritage people are twenty-five percent. That was it less likely to get into Oxbridge. But if you compare that to the very real suffering of Haitians, or you look at America, where slavery was abolished, but the deep divisions that that created within America endure today and manifest themselves in institutional racism, you know, in the 60s segregation. So I think it's about not letting these arguments become ad absurdum and just kind of seeing them at their own at face value and using compassion and logic and common sense rather than trying to have a blanket rule on everything. Sahil, do you agree? I mean, do you think your piece is perhaps a distraction from those who actually do deserve reparations? Well, well, it is a satire, but I think I, I agree with Barack Obama uh, when, he, when he was asked about what he thought about reparations. And he, you know, he said, I oppose it for two reasons. First reason is that it might be an excuse to say we've paid our debt and actually to avoid these harder questions of how you solve discrimination in housing and education and lifting millions out of poverty. I think, you know, and this is he was talking about the domestic context, because let's let's not forget this was debated in the House on Congress for part of June. His second argument was it's much easier for me as a politician to mobilize the public that I represent around anti-poverty investment than a specific benefit for African-Americans for slavery and Jim Crow. So I think 
at best, this discussion about reparations rather is actually a distraction. And it's something that will make relations worse, not better. Because the idea behind the reparations is truth and reconciliation, but actually it's going to rip our society apart. It's going to corrupt the conscience it's trying to create. Nadine, one of the topics that um, Sahil's piece also talks about is the Cambridge Slavery Inquiry. Can you tell us a bit about that and what it's going to be looking at in particular? Uh, yes, yeah, so it's going to be looking at the, the university's historical ties with slavery and the ways in which it's benefited. Obviously, Sahil in his article talks about how other universities have um, have also done this kind of inquiry, like Glasgow. I think they discovered about 200 million came from, a lot of their um, benefits came from um, um, slavery. Um, I just like, as Sahil just said as well, I'd just like to pick up on that. I also wanted to also say that trying to quantify and put a number on reparations and say, actually, this is the figure, you know, we want to return. I don't think that's feasible. What I think is purely because you can't put a number on the suffering and the the intergenerational um, and inherited uh, socioeconomic circumstances because of colonialism and slavery. But for me, I'm half Jamaican, and this is one, one of the perspectives I've developed, is maybe supporting the former colonies as nations, as independent nations, with their infrastructure, with their education, forming trade agreements. Particularly with Brexit coming up, maybe we can look towards the former Commonwealth countries to see how we can create trading agreements that may lift and benefit their economies too. I think trying to put a number um, and a figure on reparations ultimately will kind of, it kind of quantifies and puts a monetary value on someone's suffering. And I don't think that is what we should be doing here. I think what we should be doing is acknowledging the past, acknowledging the, acknowledging the wrongs, because I think in the British con- uh, consciousness, particularly, we're not really taught much about the crimes of the British Empire. And then looking right now, right, we, kn- we recognise these issues, we recognise these wrongs. What can we do to kind of create a more balanced world, knowing that we took a lot of, from other people? And how can we, I think, yeah, how can we just create a kind of, not necessarily a reparation sum, but like a agreement or a support system. I think there's a lot I agree in, with that about. Um, I mean, we, we do have a, a foreign aid program and we, we consistently achieve numbers as a percentage of our economy that other, other countries that are wealthier than us don't. And I suppose I do agree that, you know, the 18th and 19th century British economy benefited from the empire and benefited from the slave trade. And I'm actually in favour of improving human capital and living standards domestically and for international development. I think the question for me is whether these things are justified as part of the debt that we all owe each other as British citizens or as citizens of the world, or whether this debt is something we owe each other because of some inherited notion of victimhood. I think that justification matters. One of the things I find really morally dubious about this idea is that it depends on an inherited a notion of inherited guilt. I mean, reparation specifically means making amends for a wrong one has done. You're not just saying these things were awful. We're seeking to engage my responsibility. But how am I responsible? I mean, I'm a citizen of the UK. I speak the language. I participate in the political institutions that are successors to the governments of the 19th century. But I didn't do it. You didn't do it. No one at the table did it. Um, And the victims, it wasn't done to them except in a purely genealogical sense. So I think it depends on this very dubious idea of inherited guilt, which is, of course, why the Jews were persecuted for uh, 13 centuries, which is about collective guilt. I think it was absurd when it was applied to that, and I think it's slightly absurd applied here. Interesting, because for me, I think if you are living in a nation that whose prosperity comes from these colonial endeavours, 
we are benefiting from that, right? Whether we we choose to or not, as citizens of this country, we are. The same way in which Haiti is suffering because of colonialism, which they didn't choose. And when it comes to, um, you know, you say it's dubious about, you know, inherited inheriting the kind of oppression from your ancestors. As I've given you an example with Haiti, if you look at the Caribbean, it's very real now. Sure. It has a, this is the difference, I think, between Anglo-Saxons and, you know, kind of 25% being less likely to get into Oxbridge, et cetera, what, what the figure was. It's very different because the suffering people are enjoying right now has a direct link. And as I said, with American slavery, the situation in America now with African-Americans and white people is, is inherent, is completely linked to colonialism and slavery. It's inextricable. And that lives in the people that live there now. So to say that it's dubious to say, you know, well, that happened to their ancestors and this is now. No, it's still happening. The kind of the ripples are still here, very like present and people are suffering and dying because of that. I mean, look at the look at the uh, institutional racism problems in America. And also the UN, I think, in 2017 also spoke about how the history of uh, colonialism, the history of these kind of wrongs affect institutions and systemic racism today they have a lasting effect so it's about acknowledging the fact that yes history is gone but how did we get here and is it still affecting us now is it is it living history right now and when we we know the answer to that is yes it's like what can we do to try and provide a remedy to that yes we may not have been the people that you know began the um the journey across to the the caribbean bringing slaves across but our society still has systemic racism problems. American society still has systemic racism problems and they all link from colonialism. So yes, the people there today didn't, weren't slaves, but the consequences of slavery are very real today still and they manifest, just manifest themselves in different ways. And finally, what is it with male Tory MPs and jogging? Harry Mount writes in this week's issue that the fat Tory MPs of yesteryear have been replaced by fitness freaks. From Jeremy Hunt, Boris Johnson and Michael Gove, they always seem to be men, and they're always men of a certain age. Harry joins me now, together with LBC presenter Ian Dale. So Harry, when did you start to notice this trend? Well, a few years ago, everyone would have noticed that all the major Tories were running, so Boris, most famously, and Jeremy Hunt and Michael Gove, and before that, David Cameron and George Osborne. And I think it's a generational thing, so you wouldn't see... Theresa May jogging, let alone Margaret Thatcher. And in fact, I talked to Dominic Lawson the other day about the king of the slimmers, Tory slimmers, his father, Nigel Lawson. He said famously got very thin, but not by taking exercise, just by eating less. He would have considered it undignified to go jogging. So I think it's a generation, beginning with Boris, born in 1964, going up to George Osborne, born in 1971, who are just in the generation where men now hitting middle age go jogging, not least thanks to the famous 1977 book by Jim Fix, the complete book of running, which got the whole thing going. Ian, is this something that you've noticed too? Um, not until Harry's article. No, <laughs> no you'll see them everywhere. I, think, I mean, William Hague, I think, started it off, didn't he? Because oh, he, he, used, did, to, he yeah. used to go running with um, his fitness instructor. So I think there have been jogging people before, though, of course, William Hague is, I guess, the same generation. I think he's 1961, I'm 1962. Yeah, same. Sort um, depending of on when this goes out, I'll either be 56 or 57, uh, which I just think is horrendous. I don't feel that at all. But I think I think men of a certain age do start to think, well, I want to recapture my youth a little bit. 
I did start going on park runs myself, but it didn't last long. <laughs> and Harry, how much of, of this is about that, to use an awful Westminster word, the optics of it, that jogging makes you look somehow more dynamic, you're moving forward, you're well, I've just life. Well, <laughs> I've just heard from you that, uh, that when they want to look dynamic, they get a jogging shot. But actually, it's funny because no one looks dignified when they're running unless they're an Olympic athlete so I think now that they're all doing it's a pattern now they're emulating each other it it doesn't look good but they do look better if they're thinner and Michael Gove has lost a lot of weight over the last year or so I'd say he's been flogging the streets of West London and Boris has lost a stone coming down from 16 and a half stone down to 15 and a half stone Given that he's five foot nine, that's still quite a lot. But he does look better in the uh, in his leadership bid, and he's neater. Whether this is due to his new girlfriend or not, who knows? And can you tell us a bit about the Westminster lifestyle? I mean, is it hard to stay fit? I think it's easier now than it was maybe twenty years ago, because twenty years ago. MPs would go out for lunch virtually every day. They'd go to a reception every afternoon or evening. And I know my friend Graham Brady, he used to uh, work for me when he was in his 20s, and he found it incredibly difficult when he first got elected to Parliament. I think he was either 27 or 29. So 20 years on, um, should we say he's a little bit more corpulent than he was uh, at the time? And I think he's found it a real struggle to keep the weight off because of that kind of lifestyle. You're assailed by lunch invitations. Now, of course, you can say no. But I mean, there, there will be a lot of MPs who they can't cook. They're away from home. They're away from their families. So that that's the way that they sort of <laughs> eat in a way. And you can't blame them. And of course, generally, if you go out to lunch with a lobbyist or a journalist, it's fairly good food. But good food means a lot of calories. Harry, they say you shouldn't trust a thin cook. Do you think you can trust a thin politician? I think you can, but uh, I think there's something a bit undignified, particularly about jogging. So if you're biking like both David Cameron and George Osborne and Boris did a lot, you're getting from A to B. There's a purpose to it. Or if you're playing tennis or football, there's something essentially vain about jogging. It's good to be thinner. We're less likely to have a heart attack, etc. But you look a little less dignified while you're actually running and there's something I think very dignified about Kenneth Clark who's just um, uh, decided he's going to stand down in the next election turned 79 last week I don't know what you think Ian but if he'd been a Eurosceptic he'd have been Prime Minister in a shot and there's something very uh, sympathetic about him not caring about his waistline about having a panatella a few pints and liking jazz I think there's something essentially unvain and, uh, and attractive about that but is it vanity that is making them jog because if you, if you look at footage of Michael Gove and Boris Johnson in particular jogging let's put it this way they haven't dressed up for it have they they, they look awful they're wearing some seedy old t-shirt with horrible ill-fitting shorts and Boris even wears a bandana sometimes <laughs> now if you if you go out jogging that you, you probably think well I'm, I might be photographed so if you're that vain you might want to try and do something about the way you look, but they clearly couldn't give a damn. That's fair enough, although I sometimes think with Boris when he was wearing those outfits, he was in his front hall carefully selecting the crazy <laughs> outfit. But, but, but all the same, I agree. No, he they're not more cynical than I am. <laughs> no, they're, not, they're, not, they're not vain in what they choose to wear, but I think it's also a, an American political thing. Bill Clinton famously went jogging, and to be fair to them, their schedules are so packed. Running is the quickest way to lose weight in the shortest amount of time. You know, you can go out and play tennis, that means finding a tennis court, someone to play with you. Mm. So uh, you understand why they do it, but it is just striking 
the big change from earlier uh, Tory politicians, particularly Nicholas Soames, has lost an awful lot of weight. We're used to Churchill, the most successful Tory politician of all time, being very fat. And in fact, you've got a very good piece in The Spectator this week by Geoffrey Wheatcroft writing in 1978, just when the jogging craze is taking off. He's saying what I'm saying now, how, how undignified it looks. But it's, it's a generational thing, too, that that class of people, upper middle class people in their 50s and 60s, are much more worried about their weight than a generation ago. Of course, John Major... Um, it's still a fine figure, a man. He hasn't ever really put on any weight. He never went jogging. I suppose he had other forms of exercise. Yeah, horizontal jogging. <laughs> yeah. And just finally, I have to ask you both. Do you, I mean, do you both jog? Harry, do you jog? Uh, I bicycle every day. Actually, I must admit, I can't tell a lie, on the very rare occasions I don't have a bike, I do go for the old jog, yeah. I've tried it. I just hate running. But I, in a couple of weeks' time, I'm doing a show at the Edinburgh Festival for a couple of weeks, and... There's two shows, an hour at four o'clock and six o'clock each day, and I'm thinking, well, what do I do in the morning? So I might, I might <laughs> think about going jogging, but on the other hand, I might not. I go to the pub. <laughs> well, I don't drink either, yeah. so yeah. That, that's possibly the secret. Thank you, Harry and Ian. And if you want to hear more from Ian, you can catch his show All Talk at this year's Edinburgh Fringe. And that's it for this week. If you pick up this week's issue, you can read everything we've discussed, as well as more from Petronella Wyatt, who's got a fascinating diary in this week's issue, Lynn Barber and Mark Mason. And if you subscribe to the magazine via spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher, we'll even throw in a £20 Amazon voucher. Thank you for listening and do join us again next week. (laughs) 